So we've been in a series for the past 16 weeks. Today is week number 17, and uh, we're not going to get out of chapter 16. We're just going to get to the end of chapter 16. Last week we were beginning chapter 16, but we didn't get all the way. We only went to verse 12. Today we're going to finish chapter 16. So we're week 17, chapter 16, we're losing ground. Um, But don't worry, we're going to catch up in a little bit, and I think God has something really cool for you in these next couple of weeks also, and especially for today. This passage that we're going to look at is one of the most important passages in the entire New Testament. In fact, you would not be sitting in a room with other believers on a Sunday morning if it weren't for this passage. This passage has such a foundational character for what we are supposed to be and do that it is essential we talk about it in a smaller lump and not deal with this in the large, broader section of trying to cover all of chapter 16 or 16 and 17. But we have been in this series for a number of weeks, and along the journey, we have seen one thing time and time again. The thing that we want out of a king is the thing Jesus doesn't want to give. The things that we want out of a king is someone who is strong and powerful, someone who can defeat our enemies, someone who will take our side, someone who will make sure that our lives are comfortable and that we are well taken care of. We want a person who can be a bully but on our side. As long as he's bullying the bad guys, we're okay with that person. In fact, that's the kind of king that we want. For most of human society, they have always wanted a leader who was a warrior. They've always wanted a leader who would fight battles and win them. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, the one thing they see time and time again is that he is completely unwilling to fight. In fact, Jesus is the one who told his followers, if someone smacks you, wait for them to smack you again. If someone, smack, if someone asks you to go, two, go one mile with them, go ahead and offer to go a second mile. If someone claims that they should take your shirt, if someone steals from you, give them more than they asked for. Jesus is the guy that if you didn't know he was quote unquote Jesus, you would say, who is this guy who rolls over and lets everyone take advantage of him? The thing is, the more you read about Jesus, the more you find him to be unsatisfying with regard to our expectations for the kind of leader we want to follow. And Matthew spends a lot of energy trying to write down in detail why Jesus is the best king of all time, and simultaneously, why Jesus will never match your expectations, and why Jesus will never be the king that conquers your enemies the way you want him to. And so we've been in this journey of, do I have the guts and do I have the patience to follow a Jesus who's not going to be the leader I want him to be? Over the last couple of weeks, we saw a big contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, last week, Jesus told his disciples that they were supposed to avoid the yeast of the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus was giving his disciples something really good. The disciples were supposed to give that good thing to other people, like bread, and the Pharisees had something they were teaching that was going to get in the way, that was going to mess things up. We talked a little bit about it last week, but I'll just summarize it today. The main concept of the Pharisees, the main yeast of the Pharisees, is that when God gives us power, that power is for us. Now listen, that makes a lot of sense, right? When God gives me power, that power is for me. Like when my dad gave me the car that uh, I was allowed to drive for that evening, all of the power of that car was available to me, right? Right? 
I'll tell you a little story. A couple of years ago, Jen and I were actually given an anniversary gift by uh, this church. And the anniversary gift included us going up to a resort in Michigan at a place called South Haven. And there was a family in the church at the time who had um, a really nice car. We're talking like a Dodge Challenger. It was just a really nice car. And it was part of the gift to Jen and to me that not only did the church pay for this uh, resort place we were staying in, I think it might have been a bed and breakfast, bed and breakfast or something like that, but they were also letting us use this car. And so I'm driving this car, and I'm telling you, it is a beautiful car, absolutely beautiful, the kind of blue that is sometimes black. And in the right light, it's all shimmery and shiny. I'm thinking, this is the, this is the most beautiful, most powerful car I've ever driven. And so like my parents always told me, when you are stewarding someone else's owner, someone else's property, you're supposed to be more cautious with that property. You know, don't ever mess up someone else's property. So here I am driving the speed limit, which some of you know is rare. But I'm, I'm going up there. I don't want to be pulled over in someone else's car. I'm driving the speed limit. I don't want to get in any kind of wreck. Not to mention I'm with Jen and it's okay to drive a little slower when you're in the car with someone you like. So anyway, I'm driving along. We're going, we go on this trip. We park the car far away from all the other cars and away from all the other trees that it might be under. And I'm just making sure I'm taking care of this car in absolute pristine fashion. And when I come home, I give the keys to the car to the guy, back to the guy who, who owns the car and And he asks me a question I never thought I would be asked. He says, so did you burn it out? With a smile on his face. Like, dude, I have a powerful car that's supposed to be used, right? You you needed to use a whole tank of gas and a whole set of tires. That's what I was giving. I wasn't giving you the car. I was giving you a set of tires and I was giving you a tank of gas. So so did did you burn it out? And I was like, no, man. I didn't do, I didn't, he goes, oh man, you missed it. It's a treat. And then he took the keys back and that was it. But, but so here, here's, here's the deal. All of us have this tendency, normally speaking, that if we actually have the power, that we're supposed to use the power for ourselves. And what Jesus says time and time again is that no, whenever power enters into your life, That is power that came from God for someone else, and it's just passing through you for the moment. The yeast of the Pharisees was power for us. Jesus is about to tell his disciples that the most powerful force in the universe is coming to them, but it's not for them. It's in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 13. I'm going to Go ahead and read it and talk through it as we go. 1613, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Remember, Jesus always uses the phrase Son of Man to refer to himself. There's a whole ton of reasons for that, biblical reasons and other reasons, a whole ton of reasons, but he always uses the phrase son of man to refer to himself. So he says, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Now, this is really key. It's important for us to know that Jesus doesn't so much really care what the people around him are saying, right? He asks the question not because he wants to know the answer. 
See, the answer he really wants to know is, disciples, who do you think that I am? Right? That's his real question. So the first question was just sort of priming the pump. The first question was just sort of getting the disciples to think along a particular avenue of thought. The first question was, why do, what do those people say about me? Now, disciples, what do you say about me? In fact, there are two contrasts that Jesus is trying to draw so that the disciples think about these two contrasts in the rest of what Jesus says, okay? Those two contrasts are this. There's the difference between what I think about Jesus versus who he really is. There's a difference between what we think of Jesus versus who he really is. There's a mental construct of Jesus And let's just be honest, if you've ever been in church before, you have a mental construct of Jesus. Maybe it's a a picture of Jesus hanging on a cross. Maybe it's a picture of Jesus holding a lamb and he's got a halo over his head. Maybe it's just a screaming pastor that really scared you and you're thinking, is Jesus that scary? I'm not sure what your experience of Jesus is, but all of us have a mental picture of Jesus. And the question is, does our mental picture of Jesus line up with the reality of Jesus? That's the first contrast. The second contrast is this, the contrast between observers and disciples or followers. A disciple is a fancy word in the ancient Greek for a person who was a studier of someone else, a pupil of someone else. A disciple was one who learned but also followed. You can think of them as an apprentice. You can think of them as a pupil. You can think of them as a follower, but that's the word disciple. So what's the difference between an observer and a disciple? Jesus has said, who do they say I am versus who do you say I am? That's the contrast between the them and the disciples. But also, what do you say about me? Is that really who I am? And that's what we're going to come up to next. Because Peter's going to give his definition for who Jesus is, and we're going to see that in verse 16. Take a look at it. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, depending on your translation, it might say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Messiah is the Hebrew word for when you smear oil on a person's forehead. Christ is the Greek word for when you smear oil on anything. So anytime you smear oil on anything, you have Christosed it. That's kind of what you've done. And so Christos is a person who has been smeared with oil. And in ancient Hebrew concepts, that's what we would call anointing. So Messiah literally means the anointed one. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word anointed one. And anointed one means king. That's the thing you need to remember. Anointed one means king. It means someone was specifically chosen by God to be the special person. And it was most often in the Old Testament used for the king. So when Peter says, you're the Messiah or Christ, depending on your translation, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he is saying two things. He's saying, one, Jesus, I believe that you're the one that God promised, specifically the king that God promised. But he's also saying something different because he used the phrase son of God. Now, this is weird because son of God was the normal phrase to refer to an ancient king. Most ancient kings referred to themselves as son of God or let other people refer to themselves as son of God because the ancient kings believed that if God was real, 
then this was the highest person under God. The king was the highest person under God. The Caesar of Rome considered himself to be the son of God. The Pharaoh in Egypt considered himself to be the son of God because they were the highest human and the only thing above them was a God of some kind and so they would say we're the son of God. Here's the idea. Son of God is a phrase that just means king. There's just one problem with that. No Jew would ever use that phrase. A Jew would never refer to the king as the son of God. Never. So when Peter uses the word son of God, he's using the word son of God in the same way that he has heard it used already. And in Matthew, we have heard the phrase used three times before this time. The first time is when the devil says to Jesus, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself off this cliff. The second time is when a demon cries out, actually a herd of demons cry out and say, what are you going to do with us, son of God? Are you going to torture us? The third time is after Jesus has walked on the water and declared to his disciples, I am. And then the disciples say, surely this is the son of God. So when Peter says this, it's the fourth time it's shown up in the book of Matthew. And Peter is not saying it to mean you're just some ordinary king. Peter is saying it to say that Jesus is somehow more than a king. Jesus, you are the one who was promised, and yet you're more than we expected. And so now Peter's in this place where he's got this big picture idea of Jesus. He's the king. He's the divine king. Son of God, God in the flesh. I don't actually know where the lines should be drawn there, but Jesus, I know you are better than all the rest of us. You are more than all the rest of us. You are more than we could have possibly imagined, and there's just one problem. Whenever you imagine that someone is more than you imagine, you're still imagining what they are. And Jesus is just about to burst Peter's bubble. Before he bursts Peter's bubble, he first affirms that that Peter's words are right. Later, he will let Peter know that the meaning was wrong. The words are right, but the meaning was wrong. Keep going. Verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, Peter, you've just heard God speak to you. You might not have known it was God, but God just spoke to you. He gave you those exact words. Messiah, son of the living God. God in the, in the heavens, the creator of the universe. He's the one who gave that to you, Peter. Blessed are you. It was given to you by my Father in heaven. Verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter is a uh, Greek word that translates the nickname Rocky, which in Aramaic is pronounced Kephas. So in Aramaic, his name was Kephas. Sometimes people pronounce it as Cephas because it's spelled with a C at the beginning. So Peter's nickname was Rocky. In Aramaic, it was Kephas. The translation in Greek was Petros. And so Peter is what we read in our Bibles. But it just so happens that Petra also means a little stone or it can mean something else, stone-like or something. So Peter, Jesus is using Peter's nickname as a pun to make a point about what Peter has just said. Watch this. Jesus says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this is such a foundational passage as I told you. 
Because this is the passage that tells us the formation of the church. Not the time the church actually started, but the time the church was actually given its marching orders, its initial identity. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades won't stand up against it. But there's all kinds of misunderstandings surrounding it. There's one misunderstanding about Peter. So Jesus says, Peter, and Peter's name is Rocky, on this rock I will build my church. And Peter thinks, oh, so people think Peter's the rock. Jesus was saying that Peter was the foundation of the church. Peter was the first pope, in fact. And if you talk to anyone who's part of an Orthodox or Catholic tradition, they will draw their lineage of leadership back to Peter and to this verse, where they will say that Peter has the authority of the church because his nickname was Rocky, and Jesus used the word rock, so clearly Jesus meant that Peter was the foundation of the church. That's what they're saying. I disagree with that interpretation. There's another interpretation about the binding and loosing aspect of this, where they will say that binding and loosing is talking about uh, doing warfare with spiritual forces. And so there are all these spiritual forces out there, and what we do is that we as Christians have the power to declare those spiritual forces are bound up and they can no longer operate, or some other positive spiritual forces need to be loosened. And so we might declare that the spiritual the positive spiritual force of prosperity be loosened in your life while the negative spiritual force of greed be lessened in your life. And you're wondering, well, how can those two things coexist with all my poverty, with my, with my uh, uh, prosperity increasing and my great greed dis- decreasing? That would be kind of difficult. Well, anyway, the point is, that's not Jesus' point. Binding and loosing refers to something completely different. There are all kinds of ways of misunderstanding this passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the four most essential things you need to know from this passage, number one. And then number two, I'm going to show you how even those four things get misunderstood so that you see the truth that Jesus is getting at in just a little bit. So here are the four things. The first thing is that those who follow Jesus are called the church. Anytime you see the word in the New Testament, the church, it is not talking about a building, it is not talking about an organization, it is not talking about the the company that signs the checks, it is talking about the people who follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus and you're an authentic follower of Jesus, you are part of the capital C church. We also have small churches, and these are local assemblies, local gatherings of people who have decided to do life together, who have decided to grow spiritually together who have decided to be followers of Jesus in a closer community. That's what the lowercase c, the local church, is. Now, I could get into the Greek word behind the word church. It's ekklesia, and it just basically means an assembled group of people. It can be that, that uh, nondescript. It also was used sometimes to refer to people who were called out from the rest of society to do a specific job or specific committee kind of work. And so you can view the word ekklesia as committee. It's assembly, it's committee, it's gathering, it could be congress. That's another word for it that could be translated. But the bottom line for you is you just need to know how Jesus used it. Jesus used it to say all of the people who have gathered under my name, that's the church. Jesus says he's going to build it. And so here's the next thing. The kingdom or the church is based on, built on the divine kingship of Jesus. The church is built on, based on the divine kingship of Jesus. Peter says you are the king, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, on this rock. If he meant to say, Peter, I'm building the church on you, he would have said, Petros 
twice. But the second time he said Petros, he didn't say Petros, he said Petra, which means rock, not rocky, as the nickname. Jesus was clearly making a distinction. He was not trying to say that Peter was the foundation. He was trying to say that this thing Peter has just said is the foundation. The revelation from God to Peter that Jesus is the king who's divine. That's the foundation. So it's our foundation. The church is built on this idea that Jesus is the divine king. No one is above him. No one is better than him. No one is your Lord. No one is your leader other than Jesus. He is at the top. Number three, the third thing you need to get from this passage is that the church is on a winning mission to open the kingdom. Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom's locked, Peter. You've got to open it. And I'm giving you the keys. Jesus is going to do something in the next few weeks after this where he gives his life that people might enter into the kingdom. But Peter is the one with the keys to the door. And it's not just Peter. Symbolically, because of Peter, and symbolically in this whole section, it is the entire church that is given the keys. The church has the responsibility to open the kingdom. But notice there was that other thing. It's a winning mission. Did you notice that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it? What that means is if you look through the Old Testament, in fact, you could do this search in your Bible sometime this week. I encourage you, read your Bible. It's a good book. Um, But sometime during this week, just do a Bible search for the phrase gates of death. Because in the Old Testament, the word Hades didn't exist. That's a Greek word. And so they used the word sheol, which we translate as death or grave. So look up gates of death or look up gates of the grave or gates of sheol. Then in the Old Testament, you're going to find out how the Jewish people use that phrase. And literally every time they use that phrase, gates of sheol means death. That's all it is. Because I could ask you this question. If you want to get into the grave, how do you do it? What's the entrance point to the grave? Well, I hope for you and for me it's death. Because going in there before death would not be a very good entrance. You know, going into the grave, the entrance, the gate into the grave is death. What Jesus is saying here is that he is going to build his church, his assembly, his thing. He's going to build his followers into this thing. And not even death will be able to stop it. Do you realize it's been like, thousands of years, 2,000 years since Jesus was teaching this to his followers, a lot of people have died. Like, let's just be honest. All of the people who aren't currently alive have died between Jesus and now. Right? That's That's a lot of Christians who've died. And the church is still going on. Jesus says, you are on a mission that is guaranteed to win because not even death can stop it. It's a pretty powerful thing. But one more, one more I want to give to you. The church's behavior has the power to keep people out of heaven. Jesus said to Peter, I give you the keys. Whatever you bind in heaven, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And I told you that's not talking about spiritual warfare and trying to bind up demons and loose angels or something along those lines. It's not. What it is, is it's Jesus saying to Peter, listen, you people on earth, 
you are the 100% complete representation of me. Jesus says, when, when I die and rise again and I go back into heaven, you are me on the earth. And what you do on the earth is connected to heaven. Binding and loosing, literally in this section, just simply means forgiveness or not. If you skip ahead to Matthew 18, you'll see Jesus use the word loosing, but we translate it forgiveness in that chapter. In this chapter, we should probably translate it forgiveness as well. What's happening is Jesus says, you have the power to forgive people. And if you forgive people, it's because they've already been forgiven. And you have the power as the, as the hands and feet of Jesus here on this earth, you have the power to hold grudges against people. You have the power to, to be mean to people. You have the power to not show grace to people. And if you don't show grace to the people, those are people who are never going to experience the heavenly grace either. This is one of the scariest parts about this church thing. We are told we have a guaranteed mission. We are going to win this mission except for the fact that we could be those people who prevent others from entering. Because the keys of the kingdom are in the hands of the church. They're the ones who know the message of Jesus' divine kingship. They're the ones who know the message of forgiveness. They're the ones who know the message of grace. And if the church holds those keys to itself, or if the church, in spite, tells someone else that they're not allowed to get in, then they don't get in. And the church has the power to keep people out of heaven. Such a dramatically scary sort of thing. Now, a lot of that goes over Peter's head. He doesn't notice a lot of that because he's, um, his mind is worrying on another thing. You see, if I told you that you were following the divine king and I told you that you were on a mission that was guaranteed to win and that death could not conquer it and I told you that all of heaven, the keys to all of heaven belong to you, would you walk away feeling defeated or would you walk away feeling empowered? Well, if it were me, I would walk away feeling like the guy with the keys to the challenger just gave the keys back to me and said, give it a second shot. Go on out there. Here's a parking lot I know about. Have yourself some fun. See, that's what I would have felt. I would have felt so much power. I would have felt so much just, you know, wow, invincibility. And the notion of having power and using that power for my own benefit is so deeply entrenched in who I am as a person, and I'm sure so deeply entrenched in who Peter is as a person, that the concept Jesus is about to share with him cannot be understood. But I'm so glad it showed up for us. The next verse, Jesus says this, verse 20. Take a look at this. Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Why in the world would the divine king of the universe tell people, keep this a secret, don't want to let it get out, you know, someone might get upset. Why, why would that happen? Why in the world would the divine king of the universe ever feel like he needed to keep something a secret? I'll tell you, it's because of this. The word was right, but the thoughts were wrong. If Peter went around saying Jesus is the Messiah, he would have been speaking the truth. 
right? But if Peter is telling other people the Messiah is here, Peter might get the meaning of the Messiah wrong in the telling of it. And Jesus wanted desperately to make sure that none of his disciples ever spoke the wrong idea of the Messiah. So while this is going on, Jesus is silencing their mouths about the Messiah. You can't talk about that. You can tell people the kingdom of God is coming. You can tell them repent. You can tell them that something amazing is here. You can tell them that healing is available to them. But you cannot use the word Messiah, Peter, because you don't know how to use it right. The word was given to you by my father, but you don't have a clue what it means. And Jesus is about to give a definition of Messiah that you will see is so uncomfortable to Peter that Peter is ready to fight Jesus over it. Take a look at what happens next, verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's not what I expect out of the divine king of the universe. That's not what I expect out of the person who says you're on a mission that cannot be stopped. That's not what I expect out of a person who says I'm building a brand new thing and not even death can defeat it. That's not what I expect. He just said he's going to die. Now, if you'd been reading between the lines, the Jesus who said death can't defeat it, and then the Jesus who later says I will die and rise again, those make perfect sense together, right? They make absolute perfect sense together. But if you're not reading between the lines, if you've got your own ideas of who the Messiah is, and that's all you can think about, then all you hear is Jesus saying, we're going to win, and then Jesus later saying, I'm going to die. Peter doesn't understand what's going on. So look what he does. Verse 22. Peter took him aside, which, by the way, is a bad situation for anyone when it comes to Jesus. You don't say, Jesus... Hey, come on. I need to talk to you privately for a little bit. Come on. Okay, dude. He says, Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter's already scheming. I know where I can get a sword, and if anyone ever comes after Jesus, I'm going to step out with my sword, and I'm going to do something about that situation, as you know later on he does. He's scheming this. He's like, how am I going to make sure Peter says to Jesus, nope, Jesus, we got you covered. Jesus is the divine king of the universe. But no, Jesus, we have you covered. Don't worry, Jesus, you're not going to die because I'm going to protect you. Doesn't. I mean, the guy walks on water, seriously. And Peter's the one who sank in front of him. But nonetheless, Peter's like, Jesus, this can't happen to you. And it's because Peter has the wrong idea in his heart, even though he had the right word out of his mouth. Take a look at what happens next. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Three times earlier in this book, Satan had tried to tempt Jesus to take a shortcut around the difficulties he would face. So even though Peter just had the words of the Heavenly Father in his mouth, he now has the words of Satan in his mouth. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
Here's the first contrast. Peter had the right word, but he had the wrong mindset. And if you want to contrast who Jesus is in imaginary land and who Jesus is in reality, the difference between the two is a sacrificial death. The the difference between imaginary Jesus and real Jesus is a sacrificial death. Because once Jesus says he's going to die, even though he says he's going to rise again, no one pays attention to that. Once he says he's going to die, immediately the definition is wrong for Peter. And he says, nope, sorry, can't have it. i got to fight against this. And Jesus is like, shut up, Peter. You're thinking human thoughts. We're not doing that. We're thinking God thoughts. And God thoughts go like this. The definition of the Messiah requires a sacrificial death. Keep going a little bit because Jesus is going to describe a little bit more about what's going on. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus says, it's not just for me, Peter. It's not just for me, disciples. This is the difference between the observers and the disciples. The difference between the observers and the disciples is, you guessed it, a sacrificial death. Peter thought he was talking about a king who is the victor over all things, divine authority, divine power. I'll fight on that army because guess what? Death doesn't matter to that army. I'm cool with that one. And by the way, he's the king in pants. He is the god of the heaven in pants or togas or whatever they were wearing at the time. And he is literally going to defeat all the enemies so I can just be with him. I'm cool being on the army of the general who is so just absolutely awesome, that I never have to actually fight. That's a great army to be in. I would love to be in that army, but you know, Jesus, I'll stand up for you if you ever need it. I'll fight for you if you ever need it, because you know, Jesus, I got your back. And Jesus is like, no. The idea of Messiah, divine king, involves a sacrificial death. Oh, and by the way, disciples, the idea of following the divine king involves a sacrificial death. Now, before I make you get really, really depressed, I want to read the rest of the passage for you. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come into His Father's glory with His angels. That means Jesus, when He rises, He is going to experience glory beyond compare. Sacrificial death is not the end. Remember, Jesus' thing defeats death. In other words, Jesus' thing isn't worried about death being the end because death is not the end because there's something else on the other side of death and Jesus knows its glory. He says, no, the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels and then He will reward each person according to what they've done. And so the people that are His followers are also going to be rewarded in glorious fashion. And then He says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in 
in his kingdom. Jesus says, listen, you guys who are here alive right now, you might even get to experience some of the glory of this kingdom before you pass through your first death. Jesus is like, yes, Messiah requires sacrificial death. Yes, discipleship requires sacrificial death. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is glory. The end of the story is reward. The end of the story is you might even have a lot of fun right now. In other words, Jesus is saying, for crying out loud, giving my life to him or for him, that's a win. If I give my life to Jesus, if I give my life for Jesus, that's a win. Far too often, we get hung up in this world that says, no, if I'm going to win, it's because I'm going to make my win. If I'm going to win, it's because I made the victory happen. I have to push my way through to victory. I have to win my battles. I have to do all these things. And Jesus says, listen, would you just die already? Save us a lot of time. If you would just deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. Because the sooner you get to dying, the sooner we get to living. And here's the amazing thing. That's in the hands of the people who determine whether others get into heaven or not. As we kind of step into the the rebirth again of our little church experiment, as we start to renew things around here and kind of get things back on track but better than ever, there are a few things I want you to take home with you. The four little bullet points that I'll put up here on the screen. The first one is this. It says, we will be committed to Jesus as our only king. No earthly loyalty comes close. We're going to fight for it. And if there's ever an earthly loyalty that seems to be infecting into that idea, we're going to call it out. Because we're going to be Jesus people. We're going to be people who put Jesus on the throne. No earthly loyalty comes close. Next, we're going to be people who grow in the knowledge of him even when it challenges previous ideas. Every one of us is like Peter. We got our idea about Jesus, but what we want is we want the real Jesus. And so we're going to be people who grow. We're going to be people who learn. We're going to be people who read about Jesus and find out who he is and what he did in this world and what he expects of us. And that's going to be just who we are because we want to grow in the knowledge of the actual Jesus, not just the previous idea Jesus. Number three, we're going to be people who live out his life for the sake of others, even when that means sacrifice. We're going to live out his life for the sake of others. If there's an attitude that Jesus would adopt for your neighbors, then you need to adopt that attitude too. If there's an attitude Jesus would adopt with regard to the world around us, then we need to adopt that attitude too. If there's a behavior that Jesus would do if he had the same exact amount of money that all of us have together, we need to do that. We need to be the kind of people who live out the Jesus life because he said, I'm going to build my church Nothing can stand against it. You guys get to determine who ends up in heaven. And oh, by the way, let me remind you of what the real definition of following me is. It's death. But a whole lot of life on the other side. And then finally, this one. We understand that this life is not a drag. It's true joy for now and for eternity. 
Jesus doesn't say you need to die to everything in the world. He says you need to die to you. Then once you've died to you, Jesus says, I'm here to give you abundant life. I'm here to help you make your joy complete. I'm here to give you such amazing glory that the Apostle Paul would say these light and momentary troubles are just far outpaced by the glory that's going to be revealed. Every one of you, I know this to be true. Every one of you who has gone through a hardship and been a blessing to someone else in that hardship, you walk away from that moment feeling such joy that you were in that place with them and for them. And even though the hardship is still hardship for you, the fact that you have blessed someone else fills you with joy that says, yes, this is who I was made to be. So listen. The whole idea of a church is to be people who follow Jesus as the divine king, but he's the divine king who dies. And so we follow him through that sacrificial death on into glory. And what glimpses of glory we get here on Sunday morning, we will celebrate and rejoice in. And what glimpses of death we have to walk through to bring glimpses of glory to the people around us, we will joyfully do it because we're going to be the people who say, no, this mission is winnable. And we're on the winning side. So let's do it. When we come to communion, that is what we're doing. The bread and the grape juice symbolize Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. When we come to offering time, that's what we're doing. We're saying we're sacrificing together to make something happen that none of us can do on our own. But we come to this moment and we say, Jesus... You died for me. I will take your death into me. The only way we could take a broken body into us is if that broken body is actually dead. The only way we can take that blood into us is if that blood comes from someone who is dead. Jesus says, I give you this bread. I give you this cup. Drink it in remembrance of me. Eat it in remembrance of me. So during our final song, I'll invite you to come forward. But listen. Come forward if you're coming forward to say, Jesus, I'm committing my life to be a mirror image of you and your death. Come forward if you are willing to say, Jesus, you are my divine king, my Lord, my Savior. You're the one who offers me grace and forgiveness, and I receive everything that you are and intend to make it part of me. Come forward if that is you. If you've committed some sin recently, that's not something to hold you back. You come to Jesus for forgiveness. That's the point. If you don't think you're worthy of Jesus, then you're perfectly the right person for Jesus because that's why he came. He came for the unworthy, to make us worthy. But if you think you're all that, if you think you got it going on, if you think the power God brings into your life is power to be used for your own benefit, then just simply say, stay seated. Because this is a meal celebrating a death that we embrace for us and through us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a time for you to come forward. We just have one final song, so as you feel, as you feel ready, just feel free to come forward, participate how it makes sense to you, and then finish up the song with us standing up, singing as loudly as you can. But let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. 
and his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.